Welcome to Leadership Daily, where together we answer what's next for the future of leadership. Today, we have a live interview with Katie Reginato Cascamo, a consultant, a coach, a speaker, an educator, a mother, and a compassionate citizen looking for the future of healthful, caring patient and provider and healthcare services, but so much more. I am excited, Katie, to have you on today. We've talked a little bit about this. How are you doing today? Kyle, it's wonderful to see you. It always is. Perfect. We have perfect. so much fun together. <laughs> So, Katie, there was a couple of things we'd briefly talked about just getting prepped for this, and I thought it would be good to start out just introducing you a little bit. I was especially a little rough there at the start. I was, I was hitting buttons and trying to get cameras and streams going, uh, so it, it's so much better having you share a little bit about your background. Who are you, your origin? You've got the mic. Let's, let's hear a little more about you, Katie. Okay, well, I come from an entrepreneurial family in the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, we were actually in property management on both sides of my family. And so that entrepreneurial element was all, always played a big role in my life. I was answering our landline property management by the time I was 12 years old and taking notes. So I learned early entrepreneurial skills. And being raised in the Bay Area, the idea of computers and technology was always a core in my education, even as early as second grade, early mid 80s. And that idea that we could see the world through a box played a big role in the way I, in the development of my worldview. Earlier this year, I had an opportunity to, to do a, a mind map of both my personal and professional career journey. And originally I thought, well, a person's career really starts when they finish their bachelor's degree. And I went through this process and began to mind map this out. I realized that really my career started as early as 16 years old as a sophomore in high school. I had an opportunity to pursue a regional occupational program, which in high school today is dual enrollment with the community college or career and technical education as a student athletic trainer. And I volunteered over 1,500 hours with my high school football team, our basketball team, and then our soccer team. And in that, that process of just leadership knowledge and developing a program, particularly building a, an athletic training room as a sophomore in high school, and to see it develop over a period of years. As I went through this process this year, I began to see that as foundational to me as a leader. Wow. I was at the time I was really interested in those inspirational posters. Remember back in the 90s we would have these like courage and it would have a quote and a big beautiful picture. That's a lot of where I started and it has continued to develop since then. I went on to uh, travel abroad for about seven years or seven months rather in Europe. And then that additionally crafted my worldview. I, I did a semester in London, backpack solo through Europe for about 10 weeks, always began to sort of see how the world was a relationship. It's this, it's this back and forth heartbeat. We're building this, this relationship with each other. 
and went to, got my bachelor's degree in English at Whitworth University and went into the insurance industry for eight years. And that's when my life really began to change. And I began to see some of the complexities that come with being a leader. Okay. Wow. That's a man. That's, (laughs) I don't even think we've touched base on all this before. The fact that you, you traveled abroad for such an extensive time period. I mean, backpacking solo, like I've taken solo trips, I think like three weeks one time. And that's a, that's a lot of figuring out to do, but yeah. But, but, I, but I think that really shaped my ability to respond pretty quickly because I couldn't actually figure it out. I spent about six months planning out my journey, arrived in Europe and scrapped it all. Oh, and wow. ended up going from day to day to day to day. And I would walk into the, the local uh, tourist office and say, where can I sleep tonight? And all but one night, I had, a, I had difficulty and it was in Chiquitera and they said, oh, we're all filled up tonight. Well, a woman comes up to me and said, well, I have a room and it has two twin beds. Would, would you be interested in staying with me? I know you don't know. Me. Well, we got to talking and she was from Berkeley, California. And we became <laughs> the best of friends for the longest time. Oh, wow. Yeah. I've, oh man, that's, that's fascinating. I've gone through uh, travel before where it's like, you got to plan everything out and you do this and that and that. And I've seen, um, I don't want to digress too much, but the moment something doesn't work right, the dominoes fall. And I've also, so I've learned and I've done the travel before where it's like, uh, the plane's about to take off. Uh, we're going to be landing in Dublin in two hours. We should probably book a room, right? I'm on their Airbnb. Technology is great these days, right? At the time, it wasn't. This was 2000. There was no technology. There was no iPhones. There was no pagers. I would actually have to go to a payphone, or I'd have to get like a, a calling card, go to a payphone, dial it in, and call back to the United States. What what is a payphone? Would you like to share that with the audience? <laughs> Oh, dating myself. <laughs> okay, so that, that seems uh, to be uh, kind of a good formative period. You mentioned that things started to change when you went into the insurance industry. What, what what did you mean by that? What was that like? I come from a place where where morals and values play a significant part in business decision making. My grandfather designed and developed and built a property management company in the East Bay area with over 85 units. And the way he led his business was was one of trustworthiness, of entrepreneurship, innovation, and really caring for his tenants. Uh, About 80% were on Section 8. And, And even people of a lot of diversity and a lot of different economic and income levels the quality of his apartments were always very high quality. He really built relationships with his tenants and within the community as a whole. And, and so that, that service to the community, that, that what I now recognize as servant leadership, influenced my early conceptualization of business and of organizations and leadership. Okay. So how, how did that impact the entry into the insurance industry? I'm curious. That sounds like a fantastic introduction to business. I don't think we're all so fortunate. I went into the insurance industry and worked for 
uh, Pacific Life Insurance. And I remember our regional vice president saying that Pacific Life, and, and I did agree to this when I was there for about a little over a year, year and a half or so, really emphasized trustworthiness, moral and ethical values. When I relocated from the San Francisco Bay Area to pursue an opportunity with, the, with other companies, I began to realize that that is not a shared value among all insurance companies. So this is, we're talking 2005, 2006, all that's coming into the Great Recession. A lot of those character issues, a lot of those character um, began to change a little bit. So I became a recruiter and a trainer and then became an agent. And, and while they did a good job over the years of trying to solve for some of those issues, there were some pretty complex issues that I had to face, real dark challenges to, to what my values were. But that also offered me an opportunity to, to rise. And my, my, one thing my father says to me is, cream always rises to the top. Yeah. And, and so I rose to the top and built a workforce program for teen mothers or those at risk of falling out of the workforce for a variety of different economic and social reasons. And, and, and through that experience, I would, on a, on, a simple, on a simple scale, would pour coffee for my staff and have it at her desk. She bought her baby in for the first six months of her baby's life. Really focused a lot of those early values that my grandfather espoused, I really brought into, into my work. While the stress of dealing with it through the Great Recession and some of the, the economic challenges, I became really stressed. Some of my clients actually encouraged me to, to step away for a while because I was, for lack of a better word, starting to crack. And in 2009, I discovered that I was expecting my first son, happily married to my husband now for over 15 years. And that stress, that long-term toxic stress over a period of about three years really broke down who I am as a person. It broke down my, it became just, I internalized that toxic stress. So my son, I ended up having complications in my pregnancy, which included a fractured hand, a flood in our house. I got called for jury duty, closed my business, got swine flu at six months huh. pregnant in a rural community where there was no health care available, got had hand reconstructive surgery and got airlifted through a blizzard at negative one degrees by fixed wing plane because the helicopter was grounded due to the blizzard. Wow. How did, I mean, that that's so many different things. How did that feel going through all that? I didn't feel. No. What happens in that level of, of, of critical trauma, emotions just shut down. It's survival mode. It is, I can't even say post-traumatic stress disorder. It was just an absolute shutdown of emotions of, of just working through, just the, working at, at a most at a survival level. But while I was in the hospital uh, after my hand surgery, and this is really where that pivot into my work as a healthcare patient leader came, was the surgeon said that, I recognize that Katie has 155 over 115 blood pressure, discharge her anyway. This was a critical level situation. He, his discharge data was more important than me as a patient. So one nurse, she's now, I believe in Medford, Oregon. She, brand new graduate at the time, she went to her nurse manager and said, 
we can't discharge her. This is, we can't do that. And the nurse manager said, do what the surgeon said. So Katie came to me or came to my husband at the time and said, came to my husband and said, just walk yourself over to the birthing center. Quietly walk yourself over to the birthing center and be evaluated. So I sort of felt like I kind of snuck over to the birthing center. I was on bed. I was uh, evaluated for about four hours when they decided, trying to decide if they were going to airlift me or not through a blizzard or if they could wait till the blizzard was over. And I, I said, well, I purchased emergency airlift insurance. Oh, wow. That, That's a thing. Right? That's a thing. It really does exist. Emergency airlift insurance, $45 a year at the time. I think it's probably more now. And that saved $11,000 to $500. More importantly, because of that $45 purchase, they were willing to airlift me. Whereas they would not have airlifted me. And with my son, I probably would not be here today. Oh my gosh. And so on that night, I remember being completely psychologically and emotionally shut down and offering that piece of information about the airlift insurance. When the emergency airlift team came, I'll never forget that moment. They, I heard some wrestling outside of the, of the room that I was in. They opened up the curtain. It was that metal sound of, you know, the of rings opening up the curtain and they stepped inside with mm. these red jackets and patches that said emergency airlift. And in that split second moment, I knew that my life was saved and I began to feel again. I came back alive emotionally and they took the gurney, transported me over, put me in the ambulance. And I remember from that moment on being very hypervigilant to every color, to every experience of that transport. The way they processed this idea of their trauma-informed care training affected how I perceived the world. And it was on the other side when they landed and transported me again by ambulance as I was going into what is now Asante Rogue Valley Medical Center. I watched almost like as an outsider looking in, almost detached from the experience as the healthcare providers that were transporting me seemed to work in some type of perfect teamwork. It, it felt like, the, for lack of a better word, being the holidays at the time, like watching the Nutcracker. Around. What's that feel like? I, I'm watching the Nutcracker. I mean, well, every single physician, every physician, every nurse, it was magic. It was like when they touched me, it was just like coming alive again, step by step, synchronized. By step, by step. Okay. And I started to slowly begin to, for lack of a better word, warm up and fe- begin to feel again. Well, and and that, cre- that, that distinction between the rural hospital where I was fearful and distrustful and really didn't believe that they had my best interests in mind compared to this other hospital that was invested in patient and family centered care. And what I now know as servant leadership, the idea that I, as a patient, was in control of and part of the dialogue of my own health. Wow, that's um, that's a uh, impactful. And like, I think there's just a couple moments that I really 
captured there as you were going through that were just like these pivot points. Um, I mean, you, you mentioned being empty almost mm-hmm. because of the environment you were in, in that rural hospital. But there's that moment of what, like seeing the, the red jumper and that moment of safety, salvation, you know, things are going to be okay. What was it like having your emotions sort of flood back in? You, you said the world was like, it was in vivid detail. It That's feels hard. like going from being ice cold to warmth, oh. to warming up. But it was more than just warming up as a human. It was each touch point was starting to feel, was coming alive. So every time they touched my shoulder or touched my, you know, put different types of medical device on me, it was like, it was those spots that just slowly were like seeds that were slowly beginning to nurture and care for me. Okay. So that sounds like quite a a transformational moment from the healthcare perspective. And you frame that starting out with the the insurance and your entrepreneurial exposure. Uh, So how has that that influenced what your focus is now? Uh, Because you mentioned kind of the, the pivot from that experience and the insurance industry. And now without skipping over all the beautiful details you know you're a doctoral candidate you're a global speaker you're a educator so what happened next well i will say i'm still working on my candidacy i am still officially a doctoral student working on my candidate paper which <laughs> focuses in on this idea of of being a patient leader and in how i integrate both this this praxis of leadership and the theory of leadership, particularly, and I won't go into too much detail on the paper because this will be forthcoming here in the next couple months or so. What I learned in the insurance industry and having been recruited to be a C-suite executive and then choosing to become an agent for three years, my intention was to go back into that C-suite management level trajectory. Having been an agent and seeing the way to see that what happens to a person within these toxic environments, Mm. it's for lack of a better word, and seeing how when the systems and the structures serve people in dishonest ways or serve people to be able to cut corners or maybe make decisions that, like in, in the case of the surgeon, I don't think it was the surgeon's intention to discharge me because he didn't care for me as a patient. I think the system of healthcare paid him for his discharge rates. Yeah. And so when people, when people over a period of time get rated based on certain external behaviors and not looking at patient care at the center of the purpose and the mission, these type of things occur. I don't think that this rural hospital that does educate future physicians intends to do things that that lack moral and ethical value. The same thing in the insurance industry. It was on that night that I went from being a boss, a leader, an executive sort of always in control to suddenly having to, because I had no other choice, lay back and be fully in a place of both distrust and then trust Mm. of healthcare providers, being in that level of, of vulnerability and the courage that comes from 
over a period of 56 days in the neonatal intensive care unit with my son rise back up again as a result of the, the nurture and the care and the development of both my neonatologists and my nurses. Wow. 56 days. That is an amazing span of time to be in the hospital in a, a, a NICU unit. Is that correct? Is that how you say it even? I actually don't know. And, and that's a perfect, and that's perfect because what we like to say as NICU parent leaders NICU, or okay. patient leaders is that there's not one of us that chose to become a leader. We did not choose this pathway to serve neonatal families, research, or be part of changing the way healthcare is delivered. Because we, I mean, my colleagues were in marketing, home design, uh, science education. I was in the insurance industry. None of us came from a healthcare background. But because of our experience and having gone into the NICU, this place that, that really nobody can imagine until you're there, yeah. that is what formed us as a collective. But without that, that profound, pivotal experience in life, this band of very dynamic, different people came together with a shared mission. And we all have different ways of approaching. So what is that mission? I'm feeling, you know, the the struggle, yet the compassion and care in that hospital that was just night and day compared to the rural hospital. Um, and so how, as a, a patient advocate, a patient leader, um, how do you manifest that? What What is it that you and your colleagues do? We each have different ways of approaching the the same challenges and opportunities. When I first started, I mean, this was in 2010, I began volunteer, doing volunteer fundraising for the Children's Miracle Network. And we were, uh, I was on the front page of the newspaper while we were still in the NICU. Uh, I was on the five o'clock news twice with my son, both at, uh, while he was in the NICU and then again, 10 months later, and then also interviewed in a promotional that went up to, went out to a hundred thousand households. So that's how it started. And then we relocated to California, where we currently live now. And I began to think about, okay, how do I take this entrepreneurial experience in, in this profound shift in life, and, and particularly the, this dichotomous difference between the rural hospital and the regional hospital, how do I take all of this and, and do something to, to benefit the world? You know, how, how do I change this? And, and during that time, I felt like my son needed me home for another couple of years. So I decided to start graduate school. And at that same time, I also uh, picked up Larry Spears' book, Practicing Servant Leadership. And I fell in love with this, this concept, this idea that, that executives and CEOs and leaders are inclusive of the voice of the patient or inclusive of this idea that those they serve share an equitable and equal voice in the, the shared decision-making of the future of the organization. But at the time, all I did was a little bit of fundraising, and I didn't quite conceptualize how this would roll out over a period of now almost 12 years. Oh, It'll wow. be 12 years in, in, on January 3rd. Um, my son will be 12 years old on 12-12. So this is his, I guess it's called his uh, golden birthday. Um, every single time I'm engaging in healthcare systems, 
I am seeing how how the inclusion of people with lived experience is in demand. So my real mission when as a result of this experience, having been really in leadership at that time for over 10 years, how do we care for healthcare providers in a way where we cultivate renewal and well-being? And it's that 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 same feeling of so if it, Healthcare providers today are dealing a lot with moral injury. And it's this idea that on a repetitive basis, healthcare providers are having to see things, see trauma, and see life and death situations that, similar to me, when I shut emotionally down, that I was unable to process the care and concern of healthcare providers. So, how do we? cultivate and nurture and develop through leadership development skills, the same the skills that our healthcare providers in Medford, Oregon had developed to be able to care for me as a patient. So then as I started to come back into the healthcare world, particularly in um, patient leadership and consulting, it is providing opportunities to, to care for healthcare providers with, with trauma-informed care, with this, this value-based system. And over the over time, I've noticed how the role of the patient leader has evolved as one of the most crucial parts of competent and inclusive leadership. Okay. Wow. So, so you're in the middle between the healthcare system, insurance companies who say what kind of service we can get and also run the hospitals. And you're there speaking up for the patients for their families, for their loved ones, and advocating for this concept of well-being and health, not only for the healthcare providers, but also for the patients. Is that, did I capture that right? That nexus between those who serve and the system in which they serve? Right now, I'm taking a more academic level from, from that role. So a lot of my, my colleagues, so I volunteer in, um, in part of um, like an international neonatal consortium work group. We're talking about how research is conducted and how we co-create new clinical solutions for neonates in the NICU. Uh, I volunteer, I work with the NICU Parent Network and I am engaged in, in different kinds of promotion. So about two weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago now, a letter that I signed on as part of the NICU Parent Network went to Congress for a NICU Parent Paid Leave. So right now I'm more on the, on the advocacy level. I built my company Courageous Steps to, to be as a speaker, to be as a leadership training and development, uh, leadership coaching and life coaching and uh, management consulting. So how do we, so it's a lot of in, in more of the training realm, the training and development, the leadership and development realm, the leadership education realm. Because I believe strongly that as we, as I use my patient leader voice, this uh, patient stakeholder voice, and it, it, plus my master's degree in leadership, in organizational leadership now, as I'm working on my PhD in leadership studies, that I value the importance of how it's more than just me serving my local hospital. It's serving the system as a whole. It's looking at the national system. It's looking at the global system. It's looking at how everything from how physicians are educated and recruited to 
how we provide leadership development at every stage of a physician's career. And as a nurse's career, we're big fans of nurses. In 2014, and what brought me into the NICU Parent Network through serving one of the organizations, Hand to Hold, is I did a paper for graduate school on how nonprofits that serve in NICU are perceived as credible for by NICU clinicians. Well, that paper ended up influencing not just hand to hold, but the NICU parent network as a whole. But I didn't know that until about three months ago. Oh, wow. As our executive director and I were having this conversation and she's outlining these different points. I'm like, huh, this sounds really familiar. (laughs) Hey, did I write that? Hmm. So it was was quite the, it was quite that on the back of that moment, but it took me seven years to get there. So. Okay. So if I were to just kind of with a broad stroke capture uh, that mission, you serve at a international level with these consortiums that are focused on advocating for the patient's voice in healthcare, um, especially yes. with the neonatal intensive care units and yes. healthcare providers, nurses. I love nurses too. I'm married to one. So I definitely feel for taking care of the nurses. Things are crazy out there right now for nurses. Okay. So one of the things, and and, and this is what has changed, what I've seen change over the last decade. 10 years ago, it used to be that we would love to have the parent voice as part of the shared decision-making and the multidisciplinary collaborative partnerships. We would love it. Sounds like a great idea. In 2012, at the um, when when Obamacare or the you know when he first when the, when these bills were first signed, it funded what's called the Patient Centered Outcomes Research Institute. As part of that funding, it became a requirement that a patient partner or patient leader or patient advocate be a constructive part of the research. So it's not going to get funded unless a patient leader is part of this research. Okay. So that's how it's the only way to get through. And so in 2019, I went to Washington, D.C. I got to attend the annual meeting and founding uh, executive director Joe Selby said, for the last hundred years, healthcare has been designed as a, as a physician led or as a clinically focused healthcare system. The idea that a patient who was vulnerable could contribute meaningful, constructive research into healthcare was just, it was beyond what anybody could really imagine. And what I've seen over the last 10 years is that that what started with that one contractual requirement in order to get funding in healthcare is now influencing every other organization in healthcare. And that same idea is now influencing education and social work and all the other kinds of organizations that work with students or work with participants in a variety of different ways. So that's fascinating. I'm curious uh, because the, the topic and what you've encapsulated with your journey over the last uh, 12 with your son and courageous steps and building uh, your global advocacy position within um, these international consortiums, but then also with your, your origin with entrepreneurship and your experience through the the insurance industry, you know, there's there's something I think that today many people may relate to, and that is 
the feeling of these toxic environments and feeling pressure, feeling like you're you're suffocating or pushed so far to the edge that you've lost all sense of feeling and there's an echoing void inside. Because today, and I know we've talked about it, one of the top things in research is, um, and in just popular discussion, is the great resignation where employees, people are feeling pressured against these counterposing forces. And that takes me to kind of the last question for the night. Given your experience, your origin, and the work you're doing with Courageous Steps, what, and I mean, importantly, the world that people are facing right now where there's division all across the board and things are changing, people are making decisions. What do you see as the next key focus for the future of leadership in this environment? Using So I'm going to start with a current news piece that just came out a few days ago. A, mo- a motherhood organization, a motherhood employment organization was just funded with $80 million of seed funding. And the way they are approaching this is they are constructing career opportunities in a way that is full-time, good pay, remote, flexible, and is inclusive. And it focuses on the working motherhood movement. $80 million was just funded a couple days ago. Wow. I was going to say, this what is, exactly is a motherhood organization? I'm not familiar with this. So there are organizations that I like, I'm a part of Mom Congress. I'm part of organizations that particularly employ mothers at every level of an organization. So increasingly, it's becoming in demand that people with lived experience, so in the case of, say, being a mother, they are entering into executive roles inclusive of their experience to transform organizations. So what we're doing is we're talking about how, in the, in the way of healthcare and patient leadership in particular, how do we, the, the future of leadership is having a recruitment and hiring process that is inclusive of a person's lived experience. So uh, I, was, I talked with a physician, it was probably about three years ago now, and was not part of the patient leadership movement, really didn't understand or even value the importance of the individual story as a purpose-driven mission to serve to serve leadership. And so we started on this conversation. I said, so why did you become a physician? Tell me more about that. And he said, well, I was uh, really good at math and science. So I became a doctor. <laughs> as we began to, call, to have these conversations, I later just I began to uncover that when he was four years old, his brother drowned in an accident and that he witnessed emergency personnel try to save his brother. But it took a good 20, 30, 40 minutes of conversation to peel that off. So how do we recruit and develop leaders whose story is as important as their knowledge and their leadership abilities? As we develop this and cultivate these stories and cultivate lived experience alongside praxis, alongside their academic experience, this will transform the way healthcare is delivered. It will transform the way education is delivered. So one of the things that I've just been so excited to see some of the work that you're doing as you look at and wrestle with your own educational journey and how that shapes the why 
and the purpose for why you do what you do. So as we do that, and as we cultivate leaders whose who story plus both practical experience and academic experience is is ground is centered in this this whole person. But right now, what we're doing is we're looking at people's grades. Not that that's a bad thing, but we need to capture these 4.0 students, like the physician that I was referring to and having a conversation with. He had 4.0 grades. He was great in science and math. He was an absolute top-notch physician recruit. It shouldn't take 40 minutes to, 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 to peel off the story of why he wanted to become a physician. And that's that head-to-heart knowledge. That's that servant leadership focus. As I focus in and I partner with these organizations that equip and engage patient leaders as credible as credible leaders, we become of a, when you think about, think of a stool, for example, you're going to have your clinician, you're going to have your healthcare leader, government, you're going to have your clinician, and you're going to have your industry. So like medical device, the fourth part of that stool are patient leaders, are credible, qualified, professional grade patient leaders. Those whose experience started them on this journey, but they have an, uh, an ability to hear the stories in, 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 of, of other patients to improve patient care, patient experience, and patient outcomes. Wow. So that, that man, that's a whole lot to unpack. You have such a wide breadth of experience that, and it, your origin up until today, working at an international level, um, it's fascinating how you captured your experience and you've transformed it into expertise. And uh, I would say an entrepreneurial fire. If you were to leave our audience with one action that they could start today to transform their experience, their lived experience into an expertise, what would be the one thing they could start doing? I'm going to start by calling leaders, such as whether it be a healthcare leader. One of the things that is really profoundly influencing to me is that when I first expressed interest in going back to grad school, the director of the Children's Miracle Network at the hospital where we were cared for invited me to shadow her for a few hours. Mm. And that turned into grad school and that turned into all this work that I do today. Oh, wow. So it's inviting the leaders, it's inviting healthcare providers, it's inviting educators, it's inviting social, social work, inviting government leaders say, I see potential in you. What do you want to do with this lived experience? And most of the time, people aren't going to know right away. I feel like I'm still rolling out. I'm still in awe every single day. Just today, a publication was published in Nature that was first listed with a patient leader over that of a neonatologist, a nurse in government. That was just published today. We're still growing. We're still developing, but it's having those systems in place to identify and capture talent. Those who are entrepreneurial, those who have the capacity to serve. It's also those who have come from diverse backgrounds as well. So in a lot of ways, it is focusing in on providing the economic and educational support to people with diverse experiences within healthcare, education, and social work. Oh, thank you for that. I, I think um, you captured it very well with your experience shadowing somebody, right? So that's something today people could do is um, creating opportunities to shadow or seeking them. 
So that's Super fascinating. Much. So I, I appreciate your time. I want to be mindful, uh, especially with family and other uh, life concerns. Um, for those who are listening, um, put a hashtag, Leadership Daily, post your question, your favorite place to post, wherever it is. Uh, and don't forget to tell us, what are you interested the most about this? Or what do you want to hear about next? And I'm fascinated to get those stories going so we can talk through what is the next thing for the future of leadership. And together, we can impact, inform, and inspire. Until next time, thank you, everybody.